I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, screenwriter, and coach Hope Anderson. Her new book is How to Remodel a Life, a Guide to Living Well with Alcoholism and Bipolar Disorder. Inspired by popular television shows such as Fixer Upper, Property Brothers, Flipper Flop, and other programs featuring home remodels and makeovers, Hope Anderson sought to answer the question, how does one remodel a life? After all, it was her own remodel that rejuvenated and ultimately saved her own life. She shares how she learned to live a happier and more peaceful life despite wrestling with alcoholism and a bipolar diagnosis and the many struggles and pitfalls she faced in order to get there. While getting sober in her mid-20s improved her life greatly, she was still subject to despair. But it was her husband's own brush with death as they entered their 60s that opened her eyes, allowing her to begin life anew. Her poems have appeared in a chapbook, Taking in Air, and and a... in a, var- in, an, in a variety of e-journals, including Inkland Nebula and the Literary Yard. Welcome to the show, Hope. Nice to have you here. It's nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for asking me. Well, you, you have quite a story to tell, or quite a few stories to tell, I guess. So how yeah, do we model yeah. a life? There are so many people that I know in the, my life, my experiences, my colleagues who are in that position, and as you said, some of them are in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. I guess, as you say, sixties was a, a, a big uh, turning point for you. So I, you can do it at any time. How do you do it? <laughs> well, I I think you you do it slowly and progressively sometimes, and um, quickly sometimes. I mean, I think everybody's journey is a little bit different. I think the thing about um, remodeling a life and remodeling a home is that when you start on this process, it seems so overwhelming. It's like, how do I do this? How, how can I possibly, you know, change this humble little home into my dream home? And how can I change this kind of wreck of a life (laughs) into my dream life? And, um, I guess, uh, what I prescribe is that you do it step by step and that you take it in small bites and that you become actively involved in the projects that you've set out to accomplish. When you say step by step, you know, don't, it's, um, how do you do that? How do you first, what's the first step? What do you need to do psychologically or emotionally to the first step? Because you come in and you say, just like you walk into your house or many of us do, and it's a mess and you think, how am I ever going to clean this mess up or get rid of all this stuff? Uh, it seems like it's impossible. Like it's the same thing. I, I right. think, yeah, emotionally. So what, what is that first step? What do you need to do? Well, I think the first thing anybody needs to do is to recognize that they have a problem. Like if your sink is dripping all over the kitchen floor, you know, you have a problem and you've got to do something about it. Okay. If you are drinking in excess and getting into trouble and, stomping on people's feelings, you you probably are pretty aware deep down somewhere that you have a problem with drinking. Whether you want to do anything about it or not is a whole nother step. But um, I think getting out of that denial that there's anything wrong with your situation is really the first step that um, comes along in this process. 
And don't you also have to look and say, okay, this is, as you say, you know, I'm drinking and take that because that was your problem, alcoholism in your 20s. Like you begin to recognize a pattern to your behavior. Like this is something that, that there is a pattern. This is the way I act and interact with everybody and it's not working. Oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, for me with my alcoholism, I knew I, I had started drinking when I was 14 years old and I knew from that first drink that when I act, when I drank, my behavior changed. And I, I never knew from the time I took that first drink what I would be like if I took my second and third and fourth and fifth. I could end up weeping in a corner and trying to slip my wrists. I could end up with some stranger that I didn't know, you know, in inappropriate situations. I could end up yelling at my first husband. I, you know, I, I didn't know where it was going to take me. And um, that was definitely a pattern that I saw and that frightened me. It really frightened me. And that I think that's partly why I came into um, sobriety fairly early in my life because I am somebody who likes control. I like to be in control of things. And I was out of control. I was, my life was so chaotic. It was very uncomfortable for me. As you say, 20s is early to be able to recognize that. You started drinking at 14. Was there anyone in your life who was, or was there a benchmark, I guess, where somebody sat you down and and suddenly, aha, I realize I've got to do something about this? Or what happened? Yes, there was. Um, I was, uh, in my 20s, I had a pretty good writing career going, um, and, and that was part of the problem. I was hanging around with a lot of writers who drank a lot, but they, they didn't seem to have a problem with it. But I thought at, at 20 that if you didn't drink like Dylan Thomas or Ernest Hemingway or someone, you couldn't be a real writer. So I tried to you know go along with the boys, and it just didn't work for me. But that one summer in 1981, I was invited to be a teaching assistant at a writer's conference in Maine, and I went up to this uh, conference with a Volvo station wagon full of spring water and a determination that I would not pick up a drink the whole time I was there. And as soon as I got to the conference, the director of the conference met me and said, hey, you want to go get a beer? And I was in. I was like, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. And then there was this other fellow who... Um, You know, I was back in my alcoholic behavior, and there was this other fellow who I was kind of attracted to, even though I was married, and um, I really wanted to um, get something going with him, and he just avoided me like the plague, and, you know, I didn't get it. He was different from everybody else there, and one day, he came into my room, and he saw wine bottles all over the floor, and he told me that he was going to introduce me to some people who could help me with my drinking problem. So um, that's where it all started. You know, it, it started at that conference in Maine and it's continued ever since. And and started with this obviously very unique individual or whoever he was, um, who was able to, was he a therapist? 
No, he wasn't a therapist. He was just another alcoholic. Um, Who could you see know, that? Alcoholics yeah. like to help other alcoholics get sober. So I think that's part of the reason for writing my book is that I wanted people, just normal people, to read about my history of alcoholism and bipolar disorder so that they could identify with characteristics of um, drunk and mentally fractured behavior and um, see that, oh my gosh, there's other people in the world who feel like this, who have done the things I've done and I'm, I'm not alone and maybe if I do something that she suggests in the toolkit at the end of her chapters, you know, I can get better too. It's not unmanageable. These diseases are not unmanageable. We can do something about them. And that was kind of the message that I wanted to bring to my readers. Well, and you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder in your 40s. So you're talking 20 years later, you were diagnosed from the time that you yeah, yeah uh, recognized that you were an alcoholic, uh, then 20 years and then diagnosed with bipolar. But uh, so what happened at that point? Because well, during those 20 I years, had a, yeah. During those 20 years, I was misdiagnosed by a rather incompetent doctor. Um, You know, I don't know why nobody saw it before that I had these mood swings and that there was something very wrong with my behavior. And, you know, I was very productive on the one hand and the, you know, light of the party and everything else. And on the other hand, I would get depressed and so bleak and everything else and and nobody really saw it so we went to this doctor and I told him what was going on and he didn't get it he just thought I had depression and he gave me some Prozac and sent me on my way and uh, but then what happened was in 1998 my father died of cancer after my mother had died in an automobile accident and I was pregnant with my second child, and um, it just, that op- that situation opened up the floodgates for me to spin out mentally, um, and I, I started spending way more money than we had. We didn't have any money, and I was spending thousands of dollars. Um, I got into a relationship with someone who I was going to, to uh, with to counseling, um, which was inappropriate for him, but it was also inappropriate for me. But the thing was that my thinking at that time was so deluded. I honestly thought I was in love with this man. I remember driving down the street with the top down on his car, just ready for everyone to see us together and thinking I really just wanted to leave my husband and my kids behind and run away with this man forever. Um, like this was your counselor you were sleeping I, with, you are having an affair with the, your therapist or your counselor. Is that the person? No, he's he was a chaplain, actually, and he was um, counselling me while my real counselor was away. So that took on that shape. Okay. Um, and then... Um, and then, you know, when I would be doing things like playing, um, 
tennis with him, I would really literally think that I was Chris Everett at Wimbledon. There was no doubt in my mind that I was she. And so that kind of irrational, crazy, yeah, crazy thinking um, really uh, caused me to fall apart, and it caused my husband to put me in an institution. So I stayed in an institution for a little while until I got my act together. And then I went a and good saw institution, a or I described. I mean, something that was helpful. I mean, you a place. That yeah, was, it was very helpful. You know, therapeutic. It yeah. was. It was very helpful. Yeah, it was very therapeutic. And I mean, it was sad for me to be in there and have my little kids come in and paint ceramic figures with me, and then have to go away. But, um, but it was good. It was what I needed. It was the jolt I needed to recognize that I really had a serious disease. Because bipolar disorder is a serious disease. And um, anyway, I, I found this amazing, or I was, I was led to by grace, this amazing counselor, uh, psychiatrist, who got me on the right meds after much, um, you know, switching around and trying to find the exact right cocktail. And I have never gone off my meds since, and I think that's a huge part of my recovery is I got so scared by what happened to me in that bipolar episode that I never want to go back there again, never. And, um, you know, and people, sometimes people who have bipolar disorder, they start feeling good again and they put their medicines away and say, oh, I'll feel good again. It's kind of like people with masks now. Well, I didn't get COVID, so I don't need to wear a mask. Um, I think, you know, I think that's a good, I think that's true. And especially, at least in my experience, and this is really not with uh, clients, but with people that I know personally, um, and and particularly maybe not so with women, but with young, young men who uh, are diagnosed with bipolar. Well, they stop taking their meds because it affects them. They can become impotent or it can cause there's, there's issues with sexuality right. and you have, you know, young men in their 20s and 30s. Uh, that's a problem. Stop ta- and then stop taking yeah. medication, which, um, well, you're a young, you are a woman, not a man. I don't, I, I, but I, I'm more familiar with, um, with, with, um, with young men and, and that issue of not taking medication, but, or they start feeling yeah. well and it's like, okay, like you say, you know, I don't have to wear a mask cause I haven't gotten COVID yet. So. Right. I mean, and just, I don't have to worry about it. It's not going to affect me. It's not going to come back. So, but for me, even, even without having a massive, um, bipolar breakdown or episode or whatever you want to call it. Um, I have I see myself and I'm very close to my psychiatrist we talk frequently and I see myself cycling somewhat. I know when I have highs and lows and I like to try to keep my life like a spaghetti like a lasagna piece that has just a little ridge that goes up and down. So it's like a heartbeat. And it's not flat and it's not peaks but it's these regular little heartbeats that go along instead of having these very dramatic events and very um, climatic or whatever they are there, you know, the deep, deep, dark events that happen. And sometimes I can't control that. 
Yeah, you just you, try to you, flatten the curve. Yep. You want to flatten the curve. How do you do that? I mean, may, just on a daily basis, because I think one thing you said that's really important that people, I think, need to hear is that you found a psychiatrist who really was able to give you the, the right cocktail and the right medication, because that's key uh, to be able to do that. And then mm-hmm. this, this, yeah, the second part of that, though, how do you keep yourself balanced on a day-to-day basis? Well, I I write about it in my book. I've written about it in my book in detail. Um, at the end of each chapter is are a series of tools that I've used over the last thirty, almost thirty nine years, to um, keep me regular. You know, to keep me um, in uh, a steady rhythm and. One of those things is having a routine, and I follow a routine. It's not, I'm not in bondage to the routine. I can waver from it every once in a while, but basically, I do my prayers and meditation in the morning. I exercise every day. I eat healthy food. I drink a lot of water. I try to read something that's intelligent, and I stay in touch with friends, and you know, I mean, there's a lot that goes with that, a lot more um, in the toolkits, but that's the basic thing that I follow, the basic prescription that I follow, and that I suggest that other people who are trying to recover follow, because if you put that routine into your life, there isn't a whole lot of room, wiggle room, for um, breaking out and, you know, and uh, going down the tubes. Well, you know, Hope, I, I think as you describe it and the tools that, of course, people have to read the book and can get more specific when they do, but the tools at the end of the book kind of describe, you know, the recommendations for people, how people can maintain their sanity during this COVID pandemic. Um, very similar tools that we need to embrace, I think, um, because of this uh, crisis that we're in which creates all kinds of crises, financial, emotional, social, everything. Yeah. Well, I think it gives you the sense of having some control over your own life, that you're, you are not in the hands of this unknown disease and all the people who are handling it and everything else. And, you know, as we see the numbers climb and everything else, we, we really don't have to be afraid because underneath at least for me, I have this very deep faith in the universe, in, in the outside world, you know, the world outside me um, that I believe has an order to it. You can't look at trees and flowers and the Grand Canyon and California Mexican poppies and um, the ocean and all the animals and people and seashells and everything else without recognizing that there's something going on here that we have no control over that has a great imagination, that has great creativity, and that all we really have to do is to be on this planet, to take care of ourselves, our lives, and to enjoy the creation around us. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but that really is what works for me when I stay out of other people's business and I don't get involved in 
drama and trauma and everything else, but I just stick in my own um, little space and write my poetry and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Well, I see you were uh, commissioned to write two screenplays. Now you have your online coaching business specifically for writers. Um, Yes. Well, specifically for writers, but it also will work for other people. It's called um, Free to Write, Busting the Blocks That Are Keeping You Stuck. And it really is a, a series of seven talks that I give with homework at the end, just like in the book in How to Remodel a Life. Um. So you've got your basic talks and then the the prescription for recovery from the problem. And um, it's easy peasy. It's, um, I think it, it can really help people with any kind of obstacle that's in their way. I mean, if you can't seem to get around to painting the front door, try listening to these tapes and see if you haven't got the door painted by the end of them. You know, I'm, I can be pretty uh, persuasive when talking to people. And um, I think I'm being pretty persuasive in these tapes. So, um, you know, and if you want to write a novel, you can do that. There's, I'm sure there's been many more months with this COVID stuff. So (laughs) we all can, you know, we can, you can write a novel in a month. It doesn't take long. So if we're stuck, no matter what we're stuck in, we can become unstuck. Read your book. We can become unstuck. Yep. Yeah. And yep. it's possible to do that. And actually, the your book takes us, holds our hand, I guess I would say, right? Very specifically tells yeah. one how to do it. Um, yeah. Well, yes. We have a couple minutes left. Um, I just want to make sure that if we could, you, the one website that I have here that we can go to is hopeanderson.org. Does that give us all the information about the book and... About the work yes, and about that your has coaching. Everything, yeah. everything on it. But people have to make sure that when they spell my last name, it's A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N, not O-N. It's S-E-N um, dot org. Um, because otherwise they won't get anywhere. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. The coaching. The, how Do you do, I'm assuming you're doing coaching online now? Um, I do coaching online, but I, I do it by phone and by um, Zoom and different methods to try to it to suit it to the people that I'm working with. Before I had COVID, I was I would have people come to my house and meet with people and do that kind of thing, which I prefer by far. But um, you know, I would I'd coach someone through writing a book or, or little kids with handling, learning how to read or, you know, I mean, all ages, all, I'm, I'm not a therapist, so I'm not dealing with their mental health, but just things that people feel like they can't accomplish. I feel like I have accomplished in my life things far beyond my dreams. I, I feel like I have gotten to the point where I can accomplish anything, where nothing is impossible and I really want people to know that, that, you know, if you find out who you really are, you can do anything. You can do anything in the world that you want to do, but you got to find out what you want to do first. And 
that's what my path has been anyway. So well, it's very inspirational, and as you say, you've been through um, a lot. You've had a lot of challenges, major challenges. Um, so I reckon, I mean, you've done it yourself. Here's the book. You do the coaching. The name of the title of the book is How to Remodel a Life, A Guide to Living Well with Alcoholism and Bipolar Disorder. And we've been talking to Hope Anderson, and it's Anderson with an S-E-N, not S-O-N, but an S-E-N. And you can go to her website at hopeanderson.org. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Hope. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 